If uh, the norms around success in a social system necessitate that you humiliate yourself, then you're perfectly rational to just reject that outright. So that you can be an oppressed citizen, like that's a really shitty, flimsy offer. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy. Oh, and we're just going to keep uh, going back and forth with all <laughs> kinds of different variations of our names. I'm into it. I'm into I can't it. remember we didn't even I can't remember yeah, what I did we, last week, so, you know, I'm just going Last week, I, had, I was Austin Hayden, you were Troy Polidori. A uh, week before that, you were just Troy. Um, so, you're back to just the... I I like I like just Troy. Because there's, there's a few Troys in the world, but you can kind of claim ownership over it singularly. And I think that you should, you should put a stake into that, into that territory. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that idea. The city-state doesn't need a last name, why do I? <laughs> That's right. Um, all right, so this week we are going to be delving into an essay by the philosopher Tommy Shelby. And I only just recently learned of Tommy Shelby because the only other Tommy Shelby I knew was from Peaky Blinders. But it's not <laughs> Killian Murphy that wrote this essay. It as far is as the we philosopher know. Tommy Shelby. As far as we know, unless, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that would be kind of fun. Um, but it is the philosopher Tommy Shelby who wrote this essay called Justice, Deviance, and the Dark Ghetto. And it's from 20, 2007, but then he wrote a book called Dark Ghettos. I don't know what the subtitle is, but in like 2016. So I imagine that this is him kind of like working through some of the ideas that he would flesh out a bit later. Do you know much about his subsequent work? Yeah, I mean, I, I originally learned about Shelby from some of his work on uh, racism. He has a critique of uh, Jorge Garcia's really influential um, piece on racism as, as being a, primarily a moral issue. And Shelby critiques mm-hmm. that, and and he develops an account of racism as being a kind of ideology. And I teach that mm. um, that paper in in some courses that I that I teach. And so I've had this paper, which I know is I I don't know if it's like his most celebrated or most influential paper, but I think it might be um, the one we're reading mm. today. And it's just it's a bit long, um, and I so I haven't really had a reason to delve into it, and I've always wanted to. Um, so it seems like that plus the fact that I think it's even though it's written in two thousand seven. It sort of dovetails with a number of issues we've been talking about as far as the kinds of obligations that oppressed uh, persons might have. Um, that's certainly the the main topic of the paper as well. Although I think Shelby does a lot of groundwork to get to that in a way that um, Walzer, at least in the papers that we read, doesn't quite do. So it seems like a, a little bit of excavation work that m- may be helpful for us to talk about these issues. And that was what kind of inspired you wanting to to recommend this piece for the episode two, is it kind of fits thematically with some of the Walzer stuff that we've talked about over the, the previous handful of weeks off and on, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so um, there there are two quotes. We won't get into this now. Obviously, we've got one more thing to take care of before we get into the main segment. But I just wanted to say the, the, the kind of inspiration, I think, that guides the essay is... Um, a book by Kenneth B. Clark, where he examines like the pathology of the dark ghetto and other aspects of what the dark ghetto is, and then John Rawls. So it's kind of like a synthesis of Clark's project and the Rawlsian project. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I should say also that Shelby's sort of known for being um, a sort of defender of Rawls, um, an African American defender of Rawls against the critiques that come from someone like, say, Charles Mills. Um, so Shelby's okay. written quite a lot on how um, Rawls is, he thinks Rawls is misinterpreted by a lot of the um, criticisms from the left, and that Rawls is actually, a, a, he thinks, a very good resource for uh, leftist. Uh, critique of you know status quo political economy and stuff like that. Uh, he's not the only one who thinks that, but he's he's certainly one of the foremost thinkers in that way. So yeah, I think you're right to say that he's he's probably uses those two quotes in the beginning of the paper to foreground the fact that there's a kind of synthesis of these ideas mm. going on, which is great. Um, and so maybe you can explain a little bit more too once we get into the main segment about the divide between someone like Mills and Tommy Shelby as well, because that might give us some interest, even just like some some broad notes, broad strokes on that, because that might be kind of cool. But um, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Do we have any admin stuff that we got to take care of before we get into the shitty minute? Yeah, we just want to mention that if you want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash Dawn. Get access to goodies, access to our Discord server and things like that. We also want to do something we've been doing uh, a bit lately since we got back from our hiatus, which is to shout out our new patrons. We have a new patron, Wade. Shout out to Wade. Uh, he joined the Patreon uh, in the last couple of weeks and also sent us a really nice message on Patreon. So oh, cool. thanks, Wade. Yeah, thanks, Wade. Um, yeah, we really do do appreciate all y'all out there in the uh, in the parliament. Um, it's nice being back. That's all I got to say, man. It's it's something I look forward to every week. I have I've tried in 2024 to create a a more consistent reading schedule that I want to stick to over the year. And one of my goals is that I want to read um, at least like just two articles uh, a week. Right. So mm. it, I want to read like a couple of um, like popular articles slash essays a day, uh, two academic articles a week, and then um, like two books a month. That's my goal for 2024. Right. Which mm. is quite a bit. But that's 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 the goal, I think. And it was great because like this essay counts as one of my two academic articles and actually a lot of the stuff <laughs> in it. Uh, is really relevant as well and so um, you know like and then reading the Walzer essays and stuff like that counts towards like my goals so it's been uh, it's been great to also figure out how I can uh, double up some of my workload by with Owls at Dawn so thank you my friend for uh, being on this journey with me for seven years now fucking hell um, all right. Long, yeah. <laughs> I, I know dude I figure all of my podcasts save show me the meaning because that one just got the corporate kibosh, which is out of my control. But, you know, this one in Cinemathology, they're lifelong projects, as far as I'm concerned. That doesn't mean they're for the rest of my life every week, but even if there's a gap, we're going to come back at some point, you know? So everyone that's out there that despairs when there's like a six-month or a one-year gap in the Owls at Dawn content, don't you worry. It ain't over until it's over, you know? So, this, this love and is it ain't ever going to be over. That's right. That's it. That's it, man. What's that myth about the gods splitting humans into halves and they spend the rest of their life seeking the other side of themselves? Oh, that's that's literally what we're doing on this podcast. That, is that's the shit, man. Yeah. Even if we get lost, we're coming back. Damn straight, brother. 
Well, then uh, on that note, we got to do something that is foundational to our relationship is we got to air some grievances. It's time for the <laughs> shitty minute. It's where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off over the previous week or months or fucking the rest of our lives or the, the previous parts of our lives. Who, who knows how long this grievance has been simmering. But uh, Troy, you've drawn the straw this week. It's your turn to let loose. So what's got you down? So I was reading a story on the socials recently about a uh, 28-year-old PhD student. I don't know in which discipline. Um, And they were at a conference and there was a um, senior, not senior, but more senior than them, uh, guest lecturer at this conference. And the, the student said that this more senior guest lecturer was between 40 and 50, although who knows exactly, just older, right? They're a grad student. This is a senior lecturer, probably someone who's tenured, something like that, right? And I guess they they talked um, for a long time after the guest lecturer gave their presentation, and really, I mean, according to this, because the grad student hit it off and and got along very well. And I guess the next day, the more senior guest lecturer um, somehow, I guess, asked that person out. Um, and the, the grad student felt uncomfortable and then posted on the socials asking if they were right to feel that this was maybe inappropriate or things like that, given both the age difference and the, the difference in um, academic placement. And I guess presumably the kind of power differential is usually how people term these things. And I don't want to like um, castigate this person because people have all sorts of reasons for asking for advice. There's never anything wrong with asking for advice. I don't know about asking advice from the internet. That seems like a bad idea in almost any circumstance. But I guess, you know, maybe they just want to get a crowdsourced opinion, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But the sort of general discourse around this, which, I mean, you can't tell anything from social media, so I don't want to make any generalizations that are hasty based upon that. But you can imagine a lot of the discourse around that ended up being, Mm. oh, this is entirely inappropriate. There's a power imbalance here that makes it such that um, the more senior guest lecturer was completely out of place and maybe even should be reported on for doing such a thing. And it's not really so much about this issue, but just the, the very idea of power imbalances, I think, is kind of being morally problematic in and of themselves, right? And for no other reason, just intrinsically bad or something like that in relationships of any kind, whether it be a romantic one or a professional one or whatever. Um, I think it's just kind of gone off the rails. Do you remember... Last week, we were talking a bit about how, I don't remember the context, but we are talking a bit about how the idea of emotional labor, um, that concept used to mean when you are sort of forced or coerced to express emotions in your actual wage labor, and that that mm. um, can be kind of exploitative, given especially that emotions are both, you know, uh, an important part of a person's sense of themselves and their integrity, but also a finite resource in a lot of cases. And so yeah. being sort of forced to express emotions in your labor can be a, a kind of a new kind of or a special kind of exploitation in certain circumstances. And that now emotional labor just means like your friends ask you to help them. That's like a, that's a kind of emotional labor <laughs> or something like that. Mm. Or like mm-hmm. if your friends ask for advice or you're like you're, you're doing emotional labor when you help them <laughs> by giving them advice. Right. And that's just yeah, yeah. that's just what being a friend means. <laughs> There's right. nothing at all morally problematic with your friends asking you or expecting emotional reactions from you in certain circumstances, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's kind of a similar dynamic, I think, going on here where 
power imbalance can be a morally problematic feature of a situation. Like when someone uses a power imbalance they have over somebody else to exploit them, right? Um, mm. But that doesn't mean that power imbalances as such are always bad or are um, necessarily going to lead to something bad, right? Mm. I mean, there's something to say about, you know, power imbalances are kind of a site of where things can go bad. That's the reason why we think like political equality, for instance, is a good thing to get rid of power imbalances. But there are some power imbalances that are totally fine. Like when, you know, I don't know, a democracy chooses someone to represent them and give them a certain amount of power over a situation. That's not like inherently bad. It can be, right? Um, mm. But just because a power, some power imbalance exists doesn't make it a bad thing. I mean, parents have a power imbalance over children. That can often be a site where bad things happen if the parents use that power imbalance to exploit their children in some way. But it doesn't have to be, right? Um, so... I'm just I'm frustrated with this idea that power imbalances are always the kinds of things that are wrong and that there's anything like necessarily creepy or inappropriate about two adults like talking to each other, even if one has a greater position in an occupation or a workforce than another person. Right. Right. It just seems like. The idea that two people would have to have exactly equal power for them to ever even think about engaging in a sort of romantic relationship is just, I don't know, that seems asinine to me, right? I mean, it's like, can you imagine yeah. if you're like on a dating profile, like having a a, a power meter? And so you have to sort of well, what's your salary? You- what's your education? <laughs> um, you know, what's your level of objective attractiveness? And uh, how many followers do you have? And what's your social status? And yeah, 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 it would be. It's interesting. It's like it's like a segmenting of the social landscape that's really difficult to then figure out. So then, how do you find a situation if we're going to accept the kind of like power asymmetry as absolute? I don't know barometer for for romantic relationships. Then then how do you figure out what stratifications you're allowed to fit into so that there's no um, kind of like deviance from those tiers, you know, and that there's no, there's no asymmetry. And I just, that's like an impossible standard to kind of put on. And also I feel like it's very inhuman. It's kind of like, here's the irony. It feels like a technocratic regime. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean this in like the, but I, it feels anti-humanist and I, and I have a streak in me that is, is anti-humanist, but it's like a, a post-humanist humanism, you know, that's like that there are maybe new forms of what it means to be human that can be better than the humanism of just like a Cartesian humanism or an enlightenment humanism or something like that. Right. But, but this seems to be like a sort of bad degradation of the human in favor of a simple technocratic type of, um, segmentation. Yeah, I mean, and the, the general problem with most technocratic solutions, like where they go wrong, is that they involve a sort of replacement of the thing of value with the measurement of that value, where the measurement of the value Ooh, becomes the yeah. value, right? So that's right. The, yeah. That's often where technocratic stuff goes wrong, right? And it seems like here the the sort of technocratic measure is equality. Like, is equality important? Almost all the time, yeah, right. But equality is like important or valued for a reason and it's because like people matter right like we want to have um a a society um, and relationships that celebrate like the importance and value of people 
And so a really important way to achieve that is to have, for instance, political equality for all persons. That's super important, right? Um, but that doesn't mean equality in every single measure is going to achieve um, that sort of celebration of, of and uh, estimation of the value of persons, right? In some cases, it might not. And so it seems like when people think that, well, if we just had equality in every single measure, then things would be better. They're sort of replacing the thing that matters with a measure of the thing. And that in this case, for instance, I think you're right to say that it kind of um, is at cross purposes with what's supposed to be the ultimate goal, like which is like, what's the goal of relationships? Well, it's to be involved with people because people matter, right? Um, well, what yeah. if you close yourself off to any relationship that's not um, have an equal uh, balance of power between people? Well, then you're not, you're actually kind of anti-humanist in that, in that way. That's right. That seems that's against right. the whole purpose of equality in the first place. And I do feel like related to this, and and I do think that, I, and I haven't figured out exactly how it is, but I do think that there's a relationship between this tendency towards technocracy, which I think is very generalized and very replete in our society and in our political economic mechanisms as well, which I think also has an impact over our socioeconomic relations and, and whatnot, and our cultural institutions and cultural expressions. But it feels that there's also a concomitant sort of like infantilization of the human and I, I, we've talked about this before that I, I'm just like craving resources that are like mature resources that help us try to think about what it means to age and age well because it feels like we're inundated in a society that is like only about being forever young. And I think one of the kind of negative consequences of that is that all the resources that were, were offered are those that prize and those that re-educate in the form of staying young and staying maybe even infantilized, right? And I've called it and I've seen it referred to as like the YAification of everything. And I think you're seeing like, you know, with the whole hubbub about like how there shouldn't be any movies ever that have sex scenes. And <laughs> there's like this new prudism that has kind of come out in um, in certain generations and certain people within other generations. And obviously generation science and segmentation is bullshit, but just for the sake of having a heuristic here, there does seem to be tendencies, cultural tendencies, that um, I think are quite kind of juvenile. And it's the the praise of the juvenile. And so what I wonder is, is when people, there was a big hubbub. Was it Florence Pugh that was dating Zach Braff or something like that? And she was like 26 and he was like 40 or something like that. And people were like, oh my God, you know, whatever. And she came out and she's like, what? So you're telling me that I'm, I'm, I'm capable enough to do X, Y, and Z, to own a home, <laughs> run my own bank account, have a management team, but I'm not mature enough to figure out who I want to fuck, you know? And she was like, come on. And um, a lot of people were like, yeah, when you're 26, you're a, you're a grown ass adult, you know? And if you are, if you have autonomy over your life, then that means you probably do have some sense of autonomy over your body. And so maybe we should understand, so where does the appeal come from? Maybe there's an emotional maturity that, you know, sexual partners in her age range weren't offering that someone like Zach Braff was offering, you know, um, and that emotional maturity can manifest in all kinds of different ways. You know, Braff is also an artist and a creative and a producer. And so maybe there's an attraction there that is a power attraction. She's attracted to the power that this man has as an independent who's able to do X, Y, and Z for her or in her mind, right? I don't know. I can't speak to what her attraction was based off of. But the point is, is that is... Is there this tendency that is kind of almost a self-own when we critique those types of relationships of power asymmetry based on like a self-infantilization because 
people now are not seeing themselves as emotionally mature agents or people aren't seeing themselves as rational actors with capacity and with the ability to actually make decisions and commit themselves to their decisions and understand the places that they've placed themselves into. And when you cede all ground to the structural, and this is going to actually be kind of a really interesting foreshadowing of the Shelby article, if you cede all ground to the structural, then you completely denude the human of any sense of capacity or agency. And I wonder if one of the ways that that's happening is through this kind of YAification or infantilization of everything because people simply see themselves as infantilized subjects. And then the shitty thing is, is we live in a society that does reinforce that, not only through our cultural kind of artistic expressions that means and and online discourse that is also like a race to the bottom of emotional maturity but also you have like paternalistic well you're not smart enough to make decisions for yourselves and we're about to be inundated with this over the next year in this fucking political <laughs> campaign oh my right God. that's like if yeah. you if you don't vote for biden kiddos we understand you have your grievances but you're just being irrational and immature and if you don't vote for biden because of your list of grievances remember you're voting for fascism because you're not smart enough to think and and blah 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 blah, and so we're gonna we're gonna be inundated by that, and we already are. And I just wonder if all of these things don't kind of give us an insight into maybe something that's feeding into this like absolutization of the stratifications of power relations. And I'm I'm a big advocate of critiquing power relations. Like it's literally what my research is is interested <laughs> in. So I'm I'm interested in exploring that, but but I just I have been seeing this a lot, and I'm wondering if it is kind of like a self-owned confession where people are like, but we just all see ourselves as children perpetually forever, and so we have no capacity, and we just want everyone to, like, hold our hands forever. And, I, and I'm wondering if that's... I don't know if that's related to this. No, I think it definitely is. I really like that idea of the kind of self-own that happens when someone sort of rejects something out of course merely because there's a, a power imbalance involved in it. Like, you can imagine someone saying, like, well... I'm single and childless because I don't think I should, you know, bring people into the world without their consent. Right. You sometimes hear that from, uh, from certain segments of like the, uh, right. what's the term for, for, um, natalists, antinatalists. Yeah. From, from antinatalists. Yeah. Um, not the caricature, but you know, something like that. Um, and so you can, and you can imagine something like that occurring and it seems like, well, if the reason why power imbalances can be problematic and can sometimes be bad is because people can use that power imbalance to exploit another person. You could also just not exploit them. <laughs> you could also just right. have the power imbalance and not exploit them, which when a, when someone does good parenting, then that's what they're doing. They have a power imbalance and they choose not to exploit the other person with that power imbalance, right? You could well, do that isn't too. Power, isn't power action? Like, does power exist apart from the enactment of power? Like, is it just pure potential capacity or does it sort of work only insofar as there's like potential and then enactment? Like, that's what I don't know. Like, this is where I kind of get, you know how Marx inverts Ricardo's like essentialization of labor? Like for Ricardo, the source of value is from like labor as a sort of like naturalized capacity and Marx is like no it's the expenditure of labor power that is the measure of value in his labor theory of value I think there's kind of something here like you can naturalize power or you can be like no but power is something that is enacted so even if somebody has a position 
that could be viewed as a powerful position, that doesn't mean that they're using that power. And I think that's actually one of the the hallmarks of a, of a great leader is somebody who doesn't abuse their potential position of power or somebody who is um, in a position of maturity or of, of in a hierarchical state. You could think of it in a family. You could think of it in an institution like a university or in a workplace or even in a friendship, right? If somebody there, – there are power asymmetries in friendships. The truly virtuous person is the, is the one who doesn't exert that power disproportionately for their own gain. I mean, just to maybe segue into the main topic here, that's basically what justice is or the sort of the, the virtue of justice in a person, right? It's someone who recognizes um, that kind of ability and refrains from using it to do vicious things. Okay, well, and here's, I did want to say one thing. I know this is your shitty minute, but you just made me think about something. <laughs> Like also, also power sexy, right? Like, like one of the things that made me fall in love with Sean is that she's a tremendous actor, and she's so talented, and like I want to be as good as her. You know what I mean? So like, there's power something make that makes yeah, that's it. Yeah, and it's something that inspires me. She feels deeper than I feel, and which means that she's quote unquote better than me in that. And it makes me feel, in one sense, inadequate, but it also inspires me because she doesn't wield it in a way that's like, well, you're just a robot who doesn't feel as deeply as I do. She would never do that. But the way that she just feels and exhibits, it's better than me. And now, and, and, and on the flip side of that, I think one of the things that I offer in the relationship that maybe she hasn't had in previous partnerships and why it works out so well is a sense of emotional maturity. And like mission and purpose in life, right? And I think that's one of the things that she's attracted to. And it makes her want to be better and also wanted to be around. Now, of course, we could use those things and we could wield them in like ways that are exploitative. And and that's the shitty side of like exerting power. But I, those are kind of power dynamics, aren't they? Like to me, like, like isn't that like why you get people like are attracted to performers or to someone who's motivated or somebody who's passionate about something? Because... Isn't that a type of power expression? Well, that's the thing is that when you get these discussions in popular discourse about the intrinsic badness of power imbalances in some sort of relationship, whether it's romantic or otherwise, it's always a very narrow conception of power. Usually it's in the domain of um, a career, like someone has a greater position amongst a professional group, or it's, um, I guess age is supposed to be kind of a heuristic for like, um, power and maybe mind or something. It's, it's totally um, incomprehensible to me, but that's such a serious mm. issue once people are adults um, or something like that, right? Or maybe like parent-child or whatever, where there's like a physical kind of power that's overwhelming that one side has over another. Um, but if you really think about it, that's a very narrow conception of power. I mean, everybody has different kinds of power over everybody else if they want to exercise it, right? So if you really opened it up to being anything that someone can have as a kind of power over someone else, it would be unwieldy to actually think that these things are intrinsically bad or even manageable at a scale where you could say people have to be within a certain range of each other in order to be in any kind of equitable um, uh, or evaluatively like good relationship or appropriate relationship. Mm. It'd be impossible to analyze if you included every single dimension of power that actually would be 
uh, on a sliding scale like these things of, of career or whatever. For some reason, career stuff just seems so much more potent and attention grabbing. I mean, some and for, you know for for good reason in part because you know there's for lots some of real good reasons. Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. There have been shitloads of people in those roles who have exerted power in coercive ways, and obviously that's that's where it all comes from. It's like we're afraid that that's going to spread. You know. Yeah, and so it's always for good reason that these kinds of things become attention grabbing and, and whatever, right? But that yeah. we also want to make sure that even though that's it's appropriate for those things to be um, attended to in that way, we want to be careful about thinking about power imbalances as being intrinsically bad. They're they're bad when they're used for bad yeah. for bad ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I'm that the, the we're kind of touching on some stuff that's going to come up in this in this chat about justice and the pursuit of justice under precarious conditions, I guess we might say. Um, so can you give us the intro of Tommy Shelby's essay, Justice, Deviance, and the Dark Ghetto, and kind of set the frame for us a bit for the discussion? Yeah, so the basic idea here um, in Shelby's essay is he wants to talk about, uh, at the very least at the end, the kinds of um, obligations and there'll be an important distinction to make between different kinds of obligations or different domains of obligations, namely the civic and the moral. And Shelby's going to introduce that as being an important distinction to make. Um, but what kinds of obligations persons who um, are oppressed and who engage in deviant behavior might have? And so it's probably important to define um, some of these key terms first, right? So by deviance, Shelby means he doesn't mean it to be um, evaluatively negative, right? It's normatively negative, but that's not necessarily a moral judgment on the kind of behavior. In fact, he's going to make the claim later in the essay that some forms of deviance are entirely morally permissible and maybe even sort of morally recommended or morally necessary in certain contexts. So by deviance, all he means is sort of actions or behaviors that cut against widely shared social norms in, I guess, in significant ways. So it's not like, you know, using your salad fork on your pasta or whatever, right? Even if that would be <laughs> technically deviant, it's talking about more significant behaviors like engaging in criminal activity or selling drugs or um, gangsterism and shoplifterism. Yeah. He, he talks about those as being kind of ethics of deviance. And by ethics, yeah. again, he doesn't mean morality. He means um, a kind of set of, of norms for excellence in a particular area. Um, so again, deviance is not morally negative. It's only normatively uh, negative in this context. And we'll, we'll talk more about that, I think, when we get to it. And then also the dark ghetto. So the title is Justin's Deviance in the Dark Ghetto. So the context here is talking about individuals who live um, in the inner city. Usually, he's talking specifically about African-Americans who live in the inner city in uh, impoverished neighborhoods. But he says at some point in the beginning that uh, the similar kind of analysis could apply just as well to um your white people barrios yeah. yeah the 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 white kind of the white poor um etc you know indigenous native american communities etc he's focusing on the states but i was you know chatting with with sean yesterday and i was thinking of like you know black rights movements here with uh, the first nations community in australia mm -hmm. that i feel like there's a lot of cross resonance and obviously the conversation that sparked your interest in us covering this essay also had to do with the ongoing um, incursion in Gaza. So maybe there's even like an international 
um, rather than just purely like intranational way that this framework can be deployed as well. Because he does talk about being like a formal exploration of justice. Yeah, I mean, so there's, uh, even though he's specifically talking about the dark ghetto in the U.S., um, I think, and I, I, I'd be super interested in talking about this once we get through some of the some of the meat here, how this kind of a thing would apply to a situation like Palestinians in Gaza, which I think is um, similar in certain respects, but also different in very important respects to the kind of situation yes. that Shelby's talking about. And there's also, this is not just, you know, like an innovation on, on um, anyone's part recently. I, I believe that there's a lot of um, talk amongst Palestinians in Gaza, amongst Palestinian intellectuals, that they take a lot of, uh, they read a lot of um, the the work of civil rights actors in the U.S. from the mid 20th century um, as being kinds of mm. descriptions of, of their plights, as being something like what they're going through. And there's probably you can imagine there's a a similar sort of tension between. Um, different members of uh, Palestinian groups in, in Gaza and the West Bank that somewhat similarly parallel um, the tensions between, say, the you know um, the nonviolent side of the civil rights movement in the U.S. and versus the Black Radical uh, movement, mm, which fits into that Walzer essay that we discussed in our second Walzer episode on um, the obligations of the oppressed from Commentary from 1970 where he talks about that difference between uh, the kind of black radical or the, the sort of black rights movements that sought incorporation and equal rights and those that kind of had the sort of like young adventurous warrior spirit that uh, sought more the, the direct armed conflict for the purpose of incitation and, and direct revolution. Right. And so I think one thing Shelby's going to do here. Um, that I think is is good is to sort of cut against that. I think one of the main purposes of this essay is to try to explain why deviance is rational. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to argue that deviance is always going to be morally justified or even a good idea practically. Um, but I think one thing he's trying to do here in this essay is to explain why deviant behavior is well, he says the word reasonable because that's the word that that Rawls uses. Does he say? Can I ask you? Does he say it's reasonable or that it's not unreasonable? And is there a difference? I don't know. That's that's curious. I think if he says not unreasonable, what he's getting at is that it's not necessarily unreasonable. So there might be some yeah. um, deviant behaviors that are unreasonable, which I think most of us would probably agree that deviance isn't always going to be reasonable. Um, but maybe he's just being careful there in the way analytic philosophers are by saying, well, I'm going to use the double negative here in order to, to <laughs> make it clear that um, yeah. it's going to be possibly reasonable. Yeah. It's nice It's nice to – I was thinking to myself every once in a while, and I've said this before, but it is nice to read an essay like this where there are a lot of ideas still that are coming um, that are coming out, but that – it's still very clear and very precise in its use of language. And I highlighted certain things that I wonder, was he tortured over the kind of like structure of that sentence? Because I'm like, ooh, <laughs> like we can get to it in a minute, but I'm like, ooh, why this word? Like it's structured by this or it's stabilized by, like I think he's talking about like an unjust society that's stabilized by injustice. And I'm like, that's such an interesting phrasing. So 
because he's talking about like a society that itself is ideologically unjust, which is different than the society that tries to be just, mm. but that just falls short, right? But like right. a society that at least formally speaking, hypothetically speaking, is, and he uses stabilized by, and I was like, that, to me, that's just an interesting formulation that it's, yeah, and and, and I did wonder if, and maybe sometimes when I'm reading more sort of like, I, I, maybe messy, maybe imprecise type of philosophical projects, which I'm I'm partial to. I enjoy them because there's like much more of a free play that's like, I'm just going to throw a bunch of shit out there. And it feels that way, at least. There might still be a precision, and I think we can still parse things out. But it just feels like when I'm reading an essay like this, that there's much more um, intention and craftsmanship that goes into like the, the the precise formulations of things and like the use of the double negative it's not unreasonable seems to also be another one of those instances and it is it is refreshing for me every once in a while to delve into this type of work even though I'm also still very partial to the much more sort of like what I see as being poetic expressions of like maybe the quote unquote continental tradition but yeah, there, there, and I, I do want to say first of all that the we can get to that that passage if you can find it later. But uh, stability is an important concept in Rawls. In fact, it's maybe I think the most important concept uh, in Rawls. Um, so achieving what he calls stability, political stability for the right reasons, is sort of the synchronon of of justice. Like that's that's what happens when you have a just society. You have stability for the right reasons. Um, mm. But anyway, he's, so he's using a, a Rawlsian uh, concept there. Um, it's funny Which that is you, a very sort of then then that's a very sort of continental thing to do to make an illusion like that without actually noting what you're doing and just kind of throw it out there and expect the the insiders to know what you're doing. See respect respect for that. I like that. <laughs> well, it's, it's a little bit messier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the like precision versus you know messy poetic whatever kind of uh, form of presentation. Right? There is something I think that's a virtue about continental philosophy as opposed to analytic philosophy, even though I, I exist mainly in the latter, in that I find that continental philosophers can read analytic philosophy and appreciate the differences in the norms oh, and the way philosophy yeah. is done. But then analytic philosophers seem in, almost incapable of, of like returning that favor. Mm. Um, and I even find myself when I read, like when we read Livingston's uh, piece last time, I find myself frustrated at, at imprecision. And it's and it's in a way that's like not very forgiving and not very open to what the author may be trying to do. But it's almost like second nature. I can't get away from that kind of critique since it's just like the main form of criticism that analytic philosophers do to each other is to mm. bring out the imprecisions and then be like, fix this, right? Mm. Um, that's just how like Q and A's work, <laughs> basically. Um, yeah. So I do wonder, like the the norms are a little bit more narrowed and strict. I think in a way that probably makes it so that analytic philosophy misses out on a lot of good things. Um, whereas continental philosophy maybe makes more mistakes, but probably also hits the mark, like achieves something that that matters a little bit more often, possibly, given that it has this kind of openness to it. Mm. Mm. Well, then also what we have to do is we have to make sure that just so you don't get too lost in the analytic precision insider baseball debates, we need to make sure that you dip your toes into the kind of breadth of chaotic analytic stuff. We just Essentially, we just need to read some Deleuze every now and then just to bring you back over into the to the chaos of things a bit more, you know, just, just so you don't lose that, so you don't get too frustrated, you know, 
from long gaps without kind of dipping and in, dipping into that shit. Yeah, I do wonder if there's a point of no return though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried that you've reached that point. So you're getting frustrated with Livingston, who compared to fucking <laughs> capitalism and schizophrenia, that's like that's precise, you know? <laughs> yeah, when the when the whole when the mode of presentation being chaotic is actually kind of not just the mode of presentation, but the actual content of the arguments. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, cool. So let's get into this essay. So the uh, we talked about it before. So you've got these first two quotes at the beginning of the essay. And it seems that um, one of the things, maybe the two things to like, the way that I kind of think about jumping into this as, as structuring this essay are that he's doing two things, in my opinion. One is he's trying to strike a balance, or he's trying to not fall into the pit of either pathologizing the behavior of individuals who engage in deviant behavior in the dark ghetto in in uh what does he call them ghetto residents um that that ghetto residents might engage in he doesn't just simply want to lay the blame onto them as individuals failing to have like moral fiber or something along those lines right which is one side of probably the more we might call that the conservative critique of ghetto residents And then the other Mm -hmm. side is a certain lefty position that is the strictly materialist, structural materialist reading, which is that um, they have no obligations whatsoever because they are just simply defined by their structural conditions. And he thinks that if you fall into either of those ditches, um, you actually miss out on a lot of explanatory value. And so he wants to kind of uh, occupy a third space um, that allows us to still think about how there are obligations that these individuals can have as moral agents um, while also recognizing that their those obligations are greatly impacted by these structural and material conditions and that that impacts like the standard by which you make such measures, yada, yada, yada. We'll get into that. And then essentially then the way that he does that is he says that he wants to make a distinction between therefore civic obligations that citizens have to each other and then natural duties that all persons have as moral agents. So that's the difference. There are civic obligations, and then there are natural duties. And the question is, is do those civic obligations obtain when you're in an essentially unjust structural arrangement? And he argues, obviously, that no, that doesn't live up to it. But nevertheless, ghetto residents still have natural duties to all persons as moral agents. That's the kind of thesis of the essay, as far as I understand it. Correct me where I'm wrong. No, I think it's exactly right. I mean, there's there's probably a little bit more maybe room on the civic obligations issue. I think he's open to the idea that civic obligations might hold in situations of like partial justice, right? And there may be some like discussion to be had amongst um, those who are treated unjustly in a society about whether or not certain civic obligations hold given there might be like partial justice in, in certain areas. And so I think he's kind of throwing a bone okay. there to like, you know, nonviolent resistance amongst the civil rights movement in the sixties made some sense. Like it wasn't, um, it certainly wasn't like completely off the mark or anything. Um, but that, that said, he also wants to say at the same time, it's also rational to think that um, if you're sort of uh, if you're an oppressed person, systematically oppressed person you belong to a systematically oppressed group it's it's also rational to um to think that that's that's um 
even if you have some sort of like, say, formal recognition in a system of justice, if that is systematically merely formal and does not actual, then you're, you're rational to engage in deviant behaviors um, in certain respects. So okay. I think you're right to say that like um, framing this in terms of what he calls it the behavior versus structure impasse. So this idea that, again, mm. like deviant behaviors are either um, structureless sort of immoral behaviors. That's the sort of conservative critique you said, right? It's purely cultural. There's something wrong with the cultures of these people that, that, that engage in deviant behaviors. The, the culture needs to improve, usually by mimicking majority white culture or something like that. Um, or the like purely structural um, understanding, which is that individuals who engage in deviant behavior do so merely as like instruments or tools of some uh, structural features in which they inhabit sort of complete denial of agency on the part of these persons. And that both of those, um, both of those sort of uh, hermeneutics for understanding deviant behaviors are wrong, right? One gives like removes agency from individuals and ultimately like makes them non-rational actors in a way that's really mm. inappropriate. And the other gives them the wrong kind of agency, right? Where it doesn't it doesn't sort of situate mm. their agency within a structure. And agency can only be properly understood and behavior can only be properly understood within a structure um, and a context. So I think what he's trying to do here is exactly that. Let's let's um, try to understand why deviant behaviors, if if a lot of people are engaging in them, right? And they're not clearly doing so because they've all lost their minds like some mass hysteria or whatever, then we should try to understand what's rational about them. Like what are, what are the reasons that people are responding to when they engage in these behaviors? And that's sort of, I think, what he's trying to do in this essay is trying to understand why deviant behaviors in the dark ghetto are rational before you then apply these categories that you mentioned of civic obligations and natural duties to, to try to understand in what cases these rational behaviors might or might not be justified. Mm. I do want to say that there's um, a couple things. One, I actually really like, and I think that this might get like some Marxists, you know, in a tizzy, but I actually like this critique because I also think that this holds to a lot of Marxist uh, conceptions of the human. But he says that so um, the two positions, the one that is like the uh, the purely behavior side or like the, the there's something wrong with them culturally kind of side. He calls that uh, the traditional American values side, which is like you just said, kind of like majority white culture, which I think is a great way to put it. But then the structure side, he calls it, um, he refers to it as technocratic social engineering. And <laughs> this is something that is, that's like inflammatory language, I think, for a lot of people and he never comes back to it but he kind of just uses it and i think there's something that's absolutely accurate about it and this is for the more kind of like the hardline materialist structuralist reading that's like well if we just simply change the political economic arrangements then human beings will be able to love each other better their their family relations will be better their their power asymmetries will compress you know yada 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 and i do think that there's a tendency towards a type of technocracy in that that can lead to advocacies for forms of social engineering by the technocratic managers, by the technocratic elites, by those who have obtained class consciousness, right? And I do mm -hmm. think 
that there's a certain um, there's a certain expression of radical lefty approaches that does fall into that. And I just thought that was an interesting. It's a parenthetical, and but I just kind of thought that that was um, really interesting. And then the footnote immediately attached to that sentence is that he does say, um, and I just think this is important to note. He says, recent work in sociology has attempted to transcend the behavior versus structure debate by carefully demonstrating the subtle interaction between structural and cultural factors in the explanation of ghetto conditions. And then he lists a bunch of resources. The, The sentence at the end of the footnote is, unfortunately, journalistic writing, public debate, and elite political discourse do not generally generally reflect this more nuanced view of urban property uh, of of urban poverty, and I think that's important because I think that's absolutely right. And and I did it made me wonder then, who is this essay for? You know, in some ways, it felt like he was writing for like representatives in the ghetto, right? Like. Like those figures that are that are that have a connection to the ghetto that that are that are part of the ghetto residency more large more broadly. But then another part of me was kind of like, yeah, but he's a Harvard professor, so who is he writing to? <laughs> and I, you know, and I was kind of like, okay, and and obviously this is written in a, a journal, Philosophy and Public Affairs. That doesn't mean that people wouldn't read that, but obviously. I don't know if gangsters and hustlers that he is talking to and appealing and he, and he says like, but they could and they do. And, and you're like wondering, is there is there a more sort of like broad social appeal that's meant to have like a sort of trickle down thing that like he's hoping that a community leader might be able to read this and be like, yes, this is good for us to help understanding. Or is this written to like the, the kind of um, the holders of of white cultural institutional values so that they can be like, oh, well, maybe we can engage in, you know, policy proposals when we do have the opportunity or in public discourse. Or maybe when we get our chances to write think pieces that we can change the conversation within the literati. You know, like it made me wonder who is this for and to what effect is this essay written? Yeah, I mean, the easy answer is always other Harvard professors. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's... That's the immediate thing, right? Because um, he is a professional philosopher at the highest at the highest level, and so he's talking to other tenured philosophy professors at Harvard, and they're having discussions, and then that's how papers end up through Q and As and through academic conferences and seminars and stuff like that. That's that's how these things usually happen. So I don't know in this particular case that's exactly right, but my guess is it's something like that. At the same time, though, I think you're right to say like. Um, it's pretty clear, I think, also from Shelby's other work that he's trying to bring together strands from liberalism, like political liberalism, that tradition, which starts, you know, that goes from like the Enlightenment through Rawls and the followers of Rawls, and then also um, insights from Marxism and from the political left, which I think he sees himself as a foot in both of those camps. And I think what he's trying to do here, the the sort of larger project is like synthesize what's right about both of those while excising the parts that aren't right. Mm. Um, so I, he never explicitly says this, but I think that's, that's sort of the operating principle of a lot of Shelby's work, but especially here in this paper is to sort of take those two academic and philosophical versions of those things. Right. So not, 
not political liberalism in, in the actual public policy sense and not Marxism in like the political movement sense, right? But the sort of academic versions of those things um, and marry them together with the hope that there's insights to be gleaned as far as how public policy um, and, and and sort of social and political movements on the ground ought to operate. He does talk quite a lot about those things. So I think that he's he's not merely trying to like play with words at the conceptual level. I think he he thinks very strongly that there's um, there's sort of a cash value to be had as far as how social and political mm-hmm. movements ought to operate and how you know politicians and public policy advocates ought to think about um, these things in response. So it, he's got a pretty holistic view of those things. I think um, I don't know. Does that does that make any sense? Hmm. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally, totally. I, I can to- and, and I can see this type of research having that sort of trickle down impact where like the immediate thing, like you say, it's written for other Harvard professors, it's written for other philosophy professors. It's written for those written for those who are interested in the sort of like liberal philosophical, moral philosophical positions. Um, you know, but he obviously quotes he cites G. A. Cohen a few times and he cites mm-hmm. Rawls. So I think he's definitely trying to do a sort of like analytical Marxist reading of Rawls in a way that kind of Cohen does in in some ways. And then also he's appealing to the black radical tradition, right? And mm-hmm. and also the the kind of the the civil rights tradition as well. But he is, you know, in his he uses and sometimes the, the for me the keys are in the footnotes, right? But he refers to the kind of ghetto residents as lumpen proletariat. And it took me down an interesting little rabbit hole of exploring how the conception of lumpen proletariat has been used amongst the black community, particularly within um, the Black Panther Party. And how that diverges from the more dismissive conception of the lumpen in like Marx and Engels. And it made me then think about the sort of Maoist uh, appropriation of the lumpen as people who people who are potentially employable in the service of revolution by um, raising up their class consciousness, right? By incorporation into the larger sort of um, movement, if you will, in the, in the Cultural Revolution, and then how it is then that 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 the 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 the, the ghetto resident, or let's say the African American, is different than the proletariat in an American context because they can't even they're not equal participants in an unjust system. And so there's a sense in which they are even further excluded and outside. And so the activities in the underground market, you know, uh, these off the book transactions, as he calls them, and I love that phrase. It's because it's both <laughs> kind of like, it's both kind of like a critique, you know, it's kind of like, ooh, they're they're kind of seedy because uh, they're, they're off the book, you know, but also kind of like a liberatory action where it's like, hell yeah, they're exploiting the system. You know, as he calls it uh, in another point of the essay, it's just capitalism by another means. You know, they're just exploiting the system in the same way that so many other people do. But those other people that do it, especially mm-hmm. if it's like white collar forms, they don't get the same type type of stigma attached to them, right? So, but then then what is the potential of the lumpen insofar as it's defined within the black radical tradition? And it's that they they are this one, this constant reminder of the the profound injustice of the system, the kind of repressed, right? And Franz Fanon talks about this in Wretched of the Earth, 
which then makes me think more about the Walzer essay and then also about everything going on in Gaza because you have these people who they aren't even formally recognized as as citizens within the system because they are so excluded positionally and um and so yeah he he mentions that in the footnote and 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 then maybe he kind of walks it back a little bit because he says well there's no sort of like absolute sense in which you're totally excluded there's a sense in which they have some level of participation within even within an, an a thoroughly unjust system but nevertheless it, it was interesting and and i do wonder if there's something more that we could kind of like suck out of that with this conception of the ghetto resident as being the lumpen proletariat as being a potential site for a revolutionary conception of an alternative order per se that that exists as the excess that is one both the constant reminder that the system isn't complete but then that also needs to every once in a while be there in its incompleteness in its excessiveness it needs to be punished it needs to be it needs to be um stifled so that the order can continue to continue to justify its existence and and he talks about this earlier in the essay by talking about like and it made me think a bit about like um you know the outlaw in westerns as being like both this thing that is exciting in the american imagination and i think we do have that with like the ghetto resident that it's like an exciting thing that we can imagine as being like oh my god they're you know like we look at a show like the wire you know and Rock part of the, the reason 90s. that i think <laughs> that's it man yeah exactly uh, exactly and and what that means for like the, the the construction of the american imagination is that it's like one there's a hatred of the outlaw but also there's this total obsession and romanticization of the outlaw. And it's very it's very foundational to the American myth. Like that's what Westerns are all about, you know? And I do wonder if like there's a sense in which we can do like a Western reading. And I'm sorry, I know this is my shtick, but like a Western reading of what <laughs> of what Shelby's doing here with the ghetto resident as they're the the outlaw in the way that the old outlaw was in the West, as the one who is like outside the system but required to stay outside the system but then also required to be punished in the formation of the system and so you can't actually eradicate the outlaw because if you eradicated the outlaw then you wouldn't have the means for justifying the continual reinforcement of the system yeah there's so much there um i think you're you're totally right to say that the lumpen proletariat occupies an important role here. I, and i remember him talking about it but i didn't sort of make these connections explicitly when I was reading the paper. But it does seem like, you know, given that the Lumpen Proletariat has this important, there's an important debate around it um, in leftist circles, you know, um, uh, going back to Hegel coins it, right? Um, And that debate is usually around like, well, what kind of political agency does the Lumpen Proletariat have, especially with regard to to revolution, right? And... Mm. One of the important f- functions of the argument that Shelby's making here that I think is is the part of it that I think that's really good is that in trying to get around this or synthesize through this um, structure versus behavior impasse by trying to explain why deviant behaviors can be rational or are not unreasonable, right, um, is that it helps show the way that um, deviant behaviors can be a kind of exercise of political agency. I think one of my favorite things that he mentions in this mm-hmm. essay is that, you know, you might make this, you might make an argument that says, look, 
people who are engaging in deviant behaviors, even if you are treated unjustly, right? There are some means for success in the system. Maybe it's, you know, stacked against you, right? And the odds are against you, there are obstacles or whatever that are unfair. But clearly there's some ability to do it because some people do. Some people do escape the ghettos and have Mm. a sort of kind of success within the social system uh, judged by its own internal norms, right? So if you just do those things and try those things, the more people will have success and then individuals in the in the community that are outside the um the, the ghetto regions will be more likely to you know want to support those things and 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 you know get rid of those those barriers to to success or whatever right just like give us proof of concept kind of a thing ghetto residents and then we'll we'll choose to help you mm, and he has you know right. he has moral reasons for rejecting that on his face which is like which i think it's right which is you know first and foremost you can't be told you need to earn things you're due as a person, <laughs> like basic justice, right? So that's right. on its face just completely. He refers to that objectionable. He, he refers to it as an an acquiescence to injustice, if that's what right. It is. And, and I love I love that. Yeah, it's morally objectionable on its face. But even in addition that's to right. that, I think beyond even that obvious critique, there's the notion that if someone refuses to engage in a social system that they find to be inherently unjust, um, that's a reasonable action to take, even if it means having to find survival, basically, um, through the means of deviant behaviors, right? I was thinking, you know, he doesn't mention this here, but there's lots of other ways that you see a similar sort of response to, especially like consumer capitalist society, right? So like, I haven't watched Yellowstone. Have you watched Yellowstone? Bits. But, you know, there's lots of discourse around whether or not Yellowstone's reactionary and this, that, and the other. And I haven't watched it, so I don't know exactly, right? But I do know that there's this kind of uh, somewhat coded, like conservative coded sort of critique of um, of like liberal capitalism as like not allowing for strong men to have their homesteads that they defend against all oncomers or whatever, right? And that's like the sort of moral logic of the of the show or whatever. I was thinking that that's potentially mm-hmm. very problematic um, and bad, but you often sort of cousin to that is this sort of um, criticism of, of mainstream professional society um, that you hear from like working class people who are often have conservative political, uh, political beliefs that they find people who are professionalized, especially amongst the sort of professional managerial class, right? Not working class that they kind of have to live life in like a fake way. Like they put on a face with everybody. They don't live authentically. And these people would much rather Well, this is just... what Goodfellas... This is what Goodfellas is about. You're a schnook. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, I think, even more popular maybe in the 90s. But I think that's kind of a cousin to this idea that, you know, you find the way that you're supposed to... Like the norms around how you should achieve mainstream success just are offensive to self-respect right mm. and so you're not going to do them because they're offensive to your sense of your own dignity right and i think conservatives have a sort of critique of contemporary professional um success in that way that's sort of mirrored here where it's like it's not necessarily um sort of incumbent or obligatory for an individual to try to use the mainstream means of success as opposed to um, 
the means of like deviant behavior to to survive, even if it would be easier to do so, and even if it would be even they would be better off for doing so, right? If they reasonably believe that it um, offends their sense of dignity or their sense of self respect, right? Mm. And I think the fact that sort of you know black residents of the dark ghetto and some conservative plumber who wants to just work for himself and not work for some soul crushing um, corporation or whatever can have a similar critique of mainstream professional uh, managerial success is telling, mm. right? Whenever you find that kind of commonality, I think it's telling us some underlying phenomena that's, that's very pervasive. So is it a sort of like, there's a similarity between the sort of don't tread on me type of, of American spirit and the um, we have been left behind and we are perpetually reminded of the injustice of the system by the dark ghetto resident, that there's something, there's a commonality there in their rejection of the basic structure of the order? I mean, I don't think it comes from like a don't tread on me thing because that seems usually coming like it's coming from pathological Um sort of origins, that kind of thing. I think it's more just like, so you're telling me the only way that I can escape the ghetto is that I have to work 60 hours a week at a soul-crushing job that I'm miserable at all the time, right? Right. Um, But but I could just engage in these deviant behaviors. And not only will I have more success, possibly, but also I'll form community in doing so. And it won't be soul-crushing. That's offensive to self-respect. This is why I brought up Goodfellas, because that's literally the the whole thing of the reason that he finds so much, that Henry Hill finds so much joy in the life of crime is that he's not a schnook. And he's like, why would I want to fucking live in a suburban house and work this fucking job where I'm, you know, being told what to do all the time rather than being like a king, you know? And at the end, that's why it's so interesting and it's so soul crushing is because the very last shot is him living that suburban life, you know? And he's like, (laughs) you're like, fuck, sorry, dude. Like it sucks, right? You can see that that's worse than like dying as, as a sort of, um, what are they called? Like a soldier in, in the mob. Right. And there's something I think similar going on similar going on here is that the order produces schnooks. It produces people who are inauthentic agents, you know? And if the only option is to figure out how to better construct your human capital so that you can be more marketable, if that's if it's the option between that or engaging in deviant behavior where I will at least get community self-respect and things like that, then you can understand why the activities, the lure of engaging in deviant behavior is there and why it's so palpable and why it's so so strong. Yeah, I mean, I think this gets to sort of what I think is the most important part of this paper, and it's the, the notion that if, it's, if uh, the norms around success in a social system necessitate that you humiliate yourself, then you're perfectly rational to just reject that outright, which seems yeah. entirely right to me. And, you know, even though Shelby talks a lot about um, political leftists and, and, and Marx in this, or mentions those things in this essay quite a bit, I don't think he sort of brings out the most important feature um, related to those things, which is exploitation. And I, right. you know, I think we've talked about in the podcast quite a lot. I think the fact that exploitation is almost unilaterally makes people think about the Marxist form of exploitation through um, surplus value. 
is a very bad thing. Exploitation, I think, is a phenomenon that's a social relation first and foremost before it's anything involving economics. Um, and I don't think that um, all um, all taking a surplus value is necessarily exploitative. They're they're not the, they're not sort of synonymous terms. Um, that said, what's I think especially exploitative about injustice is when so there's lots of talk in this essay about reciprocity, right? And it's important to, to notice, we talked about this before on the podcast, I think, that reciprocity is very different than transaction, right? Mm. Um, reciprocity means there's some good or some value that individuals are engaged in seeking, and seeking that good together, that value together, uh, is conditioned upon um, each participating in like a fair and equal way or whatever, right? And that's different than trading one thing for another, right? It just means in reciprocity, you want to engage in fair and equal participation in a thing. But if the other person doesn't, then you're not going to either, right? Because you'd be sort mm. of a fool for doing so since you won't achieve the end anyway. Uh, it's having conditions upon participation as opposed to sort of mere transaction of one thing for another, which is sort of not even, doesn't even sort of expose the social relation underneath what's happening in that transaction anyway. Um, right. So all that said, I think the point is that, look, if if individuals are going to say, hey, people in the dark ghetto who are being treated unjustly, you just need to do these things, right? You do these things and then, um, and you have success and you prove yourself, then you will be allowed to have not just formal, but actual equality in the social system, right? And equal opportunity and all that comes with that, Right. That's a kind of exploitation, right? It's saying, mm. I'm going to reap the benefits of you doing these things to help achieve some important social value or good, but I'm not going to give you fair and equal treatment in the justice system until you do those things. I don't have to earn that, but you do, right? That's a kind of exploitation. Mm. So mm. it kind of reverses the the argument where the original worry um, – is aren't people who are engaging in deviant behavior being exploitative of the people who aren't engaging in deviant behavior because they're possibly reaping, reaping some benefits of a social system that they're not um, participating in by following its norms. So the worry is like, isn't this why deviance is, is always bad or unreasonable because it's a kind of exploitation or taking advantage, right? And I think what's what's good here is that we can flip that and say, no, actually conditioning justice, something someone is owed as a person, right, and can't be sort of bought or earned, conditioning that upon someone earning it is a kind of exploitation of them because you end up reaping benefits um, that you uh, with, withhold from other people until they earn it when you didn't have to earn it. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, so I, I sent you this little piece that I is going to be coming out. It might be out by the time this, this podcast is out in Sublation Magazine, where I'm kind of engaging with Walzer and particularly with regard to the issue in um, in Palestine at the moment. And one of the things Walzer talks about when he, in that, in that first essay from 70 in Commentary, where he's talking about the obligations of the oppressed, he talks about this distinction between those who are... Um, seeking inclusion greater inclusion into the social order and then those who are just trying to like confront it and he says that 
And I think Shelby makes a similar argument in some places at this point, at least, that you got to make sure, I think Shelby says something like, you got to make sure that you don't disqualify yourself from any possible future pursuits of justice within the social order, right? And that there are sort of like instances where you do kind of like maybe exclude yourself or disqualify yourself if your um, activities are maybe a little bit too egregious, right? Like if you violate the natural duties kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so I think Walter makes kind of a similar point where he's like, um, but he's, he's, you know, and he's talking about within the black radical tradition, he's like basically saying that 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 there are tendencies to, um, you know, violate the social order and that that sort of precludes future likelihood of inclusion into that order. Whereas those who are seeking equal rights for Walter now, this is Walter, not Shelby, um, they're just basically seeking inclusion into the social democratic order. And one of the things he talks about is like the difference between those two is that, that, um, uh, that one obviously wants equal rights. The other just wants to kind of like make a show of it. And then there's a third, there's a third position that Walter talks about as being like, but then there are also those people who are totally outside the system and they're experiencing what he calls total violence. And for them, he's like, we can't really, we can't really say, you and I talked about that as being like the slave under the master's whip who just like spontaneously bursts, Mm -hmm. grabs the whip and strangles him sort of thing. And he's like, for that, for that case, we can't really judge because, you know, it's qualitatively other kind of thing. And, and in my piece, one of the things I did is I kind of like turn Walter's argument against him. And I want to see how this connects to some of the stuff that Shelby talks about. But so I kind of turn it against him and I say, but, but the reason that Walter says that the first two cases kind of um, are interesting versus the third case of experiencing total violence is that what they're, what they're really concerned about is that they're already formally oppressed citizens. And that they just have different tactics about going about becoming more um, included into the citizenry. Whereas the other person, is they're, they're not even a press citizen. So then what I wonder then is like, well, like, first of all, how do you demarcate when someone is, like, where's the slide? Like from when someone experiences um, oppression, but they're still kind of experiencing those formal benefits to where then they fall into total violence. Like that's one of the things that I do wonder also in Shelby's argument I do wonder if there was maybe not enough emphasis on this possibility that that there's like a qualitative exclusion to um within ghetto or to or for ghetto residents, you know. Um I did I did wonder that. But um but that's so that's kind of just put a put a little button on that to bring that back around. Because then what I wonder is is so that if the offer is to like take the person who's like totally excluded that's that's totally a, a victim of total violence if the offer is but actually what we want is we want to just get you included into the system so that you can be an oppressed citizen like that's a really shitty flimsy offer <laughs> that doesn't really inspire the person who's excluded to be like oh yeah such great motivation to want to like develop marketable skills so that i can be just oppressed and then the promise that i'll be able to maybe one day experience the fruits of an unjust order, right? Like, it just feels to me that the motivation to include somebody into the system from exclusion to oppressed citizen is one that is not in any way going to motivate and inspire, right? And then, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, I mean, this is really good. This is the part where I'm also um, 
had the most issue with, with Shelby's argument, or at least was curious about how to think about it. Because he talks about how, um, I, I, I definitely appreciate and, and recognize the distinction between civic obligations and natural duties, right? And so the argument at the end sort of hinges on, you know, first, there are no civic obligations where um, vast injustice occurs, right? Um, that's, you know, sort of one side of the argument. The other that he makes is like, look, just because a ghetto resident may not have civic obligations to contribute towards uh, just reciprocity since they're not being given um, equality, equal recognition in that system, they still have natural duties. And one of the natural duties, obvious ones are like, you know, don't kill innocent people or, you know, <laughs> harm needlessly or engage in violence because you like it or something like that, right? Um, but the key one that he mentions well, there's two key ones. One is the natural duty towards self-respect, which we talked a lot about already, right? It's grounding what makes deviance sometimes rational. Um, but the other one is the natural duty towards justice. And that means mm. one of the sort of expressions of that, especially in Rawls, is the duty towards um, recognizing and following norms of justice when they exist. Now, they don't exist in the ghetto residence, so they don't have to do that part, right? But the other part of that is trying to build um, a sense of justice and institutions yeah. of justice where they don't exist. And so Shelby says, look, a ghetto resident or even someone facing what Walter would call total violence or total exclusion from a system of justice has that duty, even if yeah. other people don't follow it. That, that, that's the difference between a civic obligation and a, and a natural duty, right? Is that natural duties you have even if nobody else follows them and civic obligations you only have if generally people follow them. Right, so that means there's a kind of asymmetry of obligations on oppressed people, because they have a natural duty to try and build a system of justice where it doesn't exist, whereas people who are already benefiting in an oppressor or oppressive, oppressee um, binary in a social system have that same duty, but they don't exercise it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge burden to put on oppressed persons, and so. I totally get the argument that, look, if formal equality exists and the sense of justice is widespread, this is sort of the, the end of the paper where he mentions two kinds of injustice, right? One is where there's a, a society that has a widely held view of justice. And that view of justice is like a correct one. It actually is justice, right? But the institutions in that society fail to live up to it, right? So people are treated mm -hmm. unjustly, um, but there's a wide sense of justice that can be appealed to. Um, to try to reform that. And that, Rawls calls that near justice. Um, in that kind of a system, people are rational to engage in things like nonviolence, to say like, we're going to expose the injustice that's happening on a wide scale. And then people, since they generally have a view of justice, will respond to it appropriately or are likely to respond to it appropriately, right? And that's the sort of ethic of nonviolence follows from that sort of a thing, right? And a lot of people have historically thought that this idea represents the U.S. pre-civil rights movement, um, mm. and maybe Rawls thought that, although Rawls also says that capitalism isn't even an attempt at justice, let alone <laughs> achieving near justice. So I yeah. don't think Rawls could have consistently thought that, <laughs> nor do I think that. Um, the other kind of injustice is what he calls ideology. And so this is when there isn't right a wide sense of justice in society that's correct. There may be a wide sense of justice, but it may be an unjust conception 
right? Maybe an incorrect sense of justice. So like you can think of like a theocratic regime or whatever, where it's like, or like um, an apartheid regime or a caste system, right? Where there is a widely shared sense of, of how people should be socially ordered, but it's just really bad, right? It's just unjust fundamentally. Right. Here, obviously you can't appeal to the wide sense of justice since the wide sense of justice that people have is wrong. So what do you do in that kind of a system, right? Right. Um, that's where it wouldn't make sense to appeal to the people's wide sense of justice since that wide sense of justice needs to be changed fundamentally, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think what's what's helpful about that, but then what is difficult for me to think, and Shelby does say like, almost always in actual political systems, it's in between these two things, or there are different institutions that embody more of one than the other, more of right, the right. sense of justice versus the ideology one, right? So it's, it's complex and it's mixed, which seems right to me, right? Um, that said, I think you're right to point out that like, well, okay, put yourself in the place of a person who's facing like total violence or basically the second, the ideological scenario, right? Um, you can't appeal to the sense of justice, but you have a natural duty to promote the sense of justice in others, right? But that's but the, no one else is doing it. <laughs> it's like only you or maybe only you and your compatriots or whatever that are doing it. Like what chance do you have to, does, does like likelihood of success matter at all, <laughs> right? Um, and that's where I think about also, what we talked about. If you're talking about exclusion in terms of total violence and domination and oppression, and then it's like, or you can have economic exploitation. It's kind of like, well, how about a third option? Can I have a third option, please? Well, yeah, I mean, I think Shelby is right. Implicit in Shelby here, I think, is that um, the move from total exclusion to mere like formal recognition but oppression like isn't good like if you're an ide- if you're in an ideological scenario like you don't you don't try to get inclusion into that <laughs> um right. rejecting that and engaging in deviance is rational in that kind of circumstance right so I think that that's right to me but then having this natural duty to try and build just systems when you're being totally excluded from them like i get it and i think people do in a sense, like it would be rational and I think exemplary for someone in that circumstance to still say, like, we're going to do our best to try and build justice or at least not engage in behaviors that make it impossible that there ever could be a just um, society with our inclusion into it, like fully and equitably. But right. at the same time, like I think we talked about this, we talked about like, what are Hamas's reasons, right? In what sense are they, you know, like remove the ridiculous, absurd claims that they're like, you know, religious fanatics who were just trying to like get 72 virgins in heaven or whatever. Like what are their political, what's their political rationale, right? And not being, you know, political scientists or whatever, or knowing anything about that stuff. It does seem like the most, the most like, I mean, obvious, but most clear rationale they could have is we're never, we're totally excluded. Palestinians right. and Gaza in the West Bank are totally excluded, which they are. We're never going to achieve any sort of um, equitable or just inclusion into a democratic society or any kind of society with Israelis. Bibi's made very clear that he has no desire to do that. In fact, he's going to undercut it at every move, right? Um, so 
all we have left is non-humiliation, which means doing actions so reprehensible that Israel will be sort of forced by its political institutions and political leaders to completely illegitimate itself on the international stage by destroying Gaza. Right? And also there's that 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 idea of like the self-respect that Shelby kind of talks about where it's like even in the urban riot, sometimes there's this collective sense to just be like, well, we're in this together. To It kind of like bridges the fractures within that community that are there because of like fear and difference and things like that that do exist within the ghetto residents. We might be able to take that writ large and kind of think about Gaza as the ghetto as being like, okay, so when an action like that occurs, it kind of maybe does serve a collective vision to be like, no, here's a sense that we have self-respect saying that the community has let us, has left us behind and ignored us. And you think that you can just move on with making all of these deals with the Arab states around us, but we're here to remind you that we haven't gone away. Yeah, and what could be more humiliating than the Great March of Return in 2019 being completely ignored? On the international mm. stage, everything mm, 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 that mm. international liberals have claimed. Yeah, you, we did the thing do. that you said we should we do. That's right. And yeah. we got massacred and no one cared, right? right? That's the ultimate kind of humiliation, right? Right. right, uh, right. In addition to every day, the kind of everyday humiliation that occurs by, for people in Gaza and the West Bank. And so, like, okay, here's the idea. I think I'm, I'm kind of like putting some things together here. There's a bit of a tension between the duty to self respect and the duty to justice where the duty to build just institutions, if the likelihood of success is basically nil, and you're very likely to only be further humiliated in doing so, then your duty of self-respect might trump your duty of justice. Or at least in your Mm -hmm. mind, it would, right? Right. And so people are sort of pushed, not pushed in the sense of forced or coerced, they do it with, you know, agency, to do absolutely reprehensible things. But it comes from this sense of like, there's no way we can both exercise the duty of self-respect and the duty of justice. It's been made impossible by our total exclusion and constant humiliation, right? Politically and socially. And so incredible, horrible violence occurs as a way of sort of upending or, you know, preventing the constant humiliation. And again, that's just not to say that like that makes those things like good or like good politics or effective or anything like that, but just try to explain why it's not a sort of irrational exuberance or something like that. It's, well, it's coming and, from and, a place. Well, yeah, go ahead. Coming from a place. No, go, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but it even, even Shelby would say that it also does violate the natural duties, right? Of like not like causing harm and things like that, right? Like unnecessary harm or, or, or whatever. Um, and so there is a sense in which it, it oversteps even the natural duties that Shelby talks about. But he doesn't then say, like, therefore that proves that the deviance is unreasonable, right? It just is we need to recognize for Shelby that there should still be a sense in which there's like a sort of like universalist natural duty that that people ought to um, exhibit in community or in society. No? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people in um, sort of Palestinian politics in Gaza who are probably 
who are very likely anti-Hamas and don't think that sort of the, the attacks on October 7th were going to help Gazans at all. And in fact, even if Hamas is right that Israel humiliating itself, not humiliating itself, but illegitimating itself on the international stage by destroying Gaza is going to sort of hurt its um, political place on the international stage. They may be right about that. Certainly didn't help Palestinians in Gaza because I don't think they were calling back. <laughs> right? like, well, here's the thing too. Just like Shelby highlights that there are internal divisions within ghetto residents, there are internal divisions not only within Gaza, but also within Hamas. And apparently, um, some reports have been coming out recently that in the days leading up to the 7 October attack, that there was a last-minute change in plans that a faction of Hamas um, decided to, to enact, which was the create terror amongst the citizenry, where other factions within even the, um, the militants, that they were only going to grab um, military personnel. And that's why some of you get some of these reports where they're in the kibbutz and they're like, hey, are, is that a military person? And they're like, no. And they're like, well, we're, we're only here for the military personnel. And then you have other reports where obviously it's mass chaos caused among just average citizens. So there are divisions not only within Gaza, but even within Hamas, and then even further within the Hamas militant themselves that were engaged in the activity. So I think that's also kind of something that we have to keep in mind, that that's important to understand as well, right? Yeah. And I think when you have that kind of tragic conflict of values, right, where your your sense of your own self-respect and dignity is at cross purposes with natural duty towards having a just society, which I think is what we're talking about here, right? When that conflict occurs... And it occurs because individuals have made it occur on purpose to, to demobilize and to like remove people's agency and ability to change their own position in society. Then you you just you can't understand that situation and, and judge it morally without looking at who made it that way, right? If people are put in tragic conflicts of values on purpose in order to make them immobilized, then that's a special kind of injustice, right? It's not just exploitation and it's not just um, sort of oppression. It's like a special kind of inhuman treatment of someone. Not only are we going to oppress you and exploit you, but we're going to, on purpose, put you into a place where the only thing you can do is violate your own sense of dignity in one way or another. Right. And then use that, weaponize that against you to judge you morally. Like that's, I'm sure it's not like entirely unique to this situation, but it seems especially potent in this example. And I think it's important for understanding the special kind of injustice that's occurring here. That's even different than like um, the, the situation of like African-Americans pre-civil rights and like Jim Crow South, which as bad as it was, it wasn't it wasn't that kind of injustice. I'm not trying to like quantify which is more unjust, right? Just to say like there's a special kind of thing um, I think happening in um, in Palestine. And then, you know, I'm sure there's probably a sense in which similar things happened in um, in apartheid regimes like the the US pre the civil rights movement. So I don't want to say like that that never happened, but um, it seems especially potent in this scenario. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I kind of want to, and I don't know if we're pressing Shelby's argument 
too far like in our abstraction of it to this other issue but he talks about early on in the essay um that the, the three the three forms of deviance that he's going to address are crime refusing to work in legitimate jobs and then having contempt for authority and one of the tragic ironies of post 7 october is apparently before the those attacks um there was a lot of there was there was there was tension within Gaza among its citizenry with regards to how it viewed Hamas. And it wasn't like people were overwhelmingly supportive. As a matter of fact, there was a large contingent that were kind of like, some were lukewarm and some were kind of like, yeah, we're not really fans. Of course, now the irony is after the fact, now something like 90% of the Arab community more broadly are kind of like opposed to Israel again and supportive of um palestinian resistance in whatever forms it can take right um which i'm sure then also has authority is incredibly unpopular right now (laughs) exactly because it's viewed as being sort of um like a puppet of western interests right? right and totally ineffective which then makes me think of these three things so there's crime refusing to work legitimate jobs and then having contempt for authority so then it's like it there's a reinforcement now because of Israel's disproportionate aggression to then justify, at least I would think, in the minds of resistance movements to justify future activities of crime, both militaristically and also economically, right? Um, And technologically and, and whatever else. And then you're seeing that with regards to like these solidarity movements with like the Houthis in uh, off the coast of Yemen, just basically like they're like, cool, we're going to engage in our own forms of crime now, right? In in solidarity, and um, and then you have this refusing to work in legitimate jobs. It then that's kind of like um, a sort of legitimation, almost if you will, of engaging in underground economic activities or the black market, you know, the off the books transactions, so to speak. Um, which then are only going to continue to ramp up more, right? Circumventing the kind of like on the books, legitimate, quote unquote, forms of economic activity. And then having contempt for authority, well, that's contempt for the global economic order, which is something that you just mentioned, right? Which it's kind of, or you hinted at, that which is kind of like, yeah, but they're not ever going to get inclusion into this global democratic, liberal democratic order so now you just have like a re-entrenchment for another another approach, like a third way, if you will, right? Which is kind of then then basically saying so that if the option is to be included into the democratic order, but that inclusion requires us to be dominated, oppressed, or to kind of like seed crucial important parts of our society, our ethic, our culture, then actually we're going to not even have any respect for that authoritative governance structure per se and so i feel like this is kind of like i i I don't know do you think that we can look at those three forms of deviance and kind of like look at them as 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 giving reason to not only current or not only past resistance efforts and including the sort of um and again i'm saying reasonableness not moral justification for the crimes committed on the 7th of october um, but that this kind of helps us understand, let's say, the rationality of certain forms of deviance in the past, but then also maybe project it moving forward of how it might legitimate future forms of deviance in the context of crime 
the economy and political uh, in terms of like contempt for political authority. Yeah, I mean, I think in addition to the Houthis in, in Yemen, you also see generally the legitimacy of a U.S.-led uh, international order has, I don't know, say fallen apart, but it's it's lost maybe any possible gains it could have made over the past 20 years. Um, and maybe even the gains made since the sort of uh, big push towards NATO inclusion after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, this sort of exposes the the hypocrisy and inconsistency of mm. of this kind of system, where it's it's very clear that there's special pleading going on for the sake of the Israeli government, right? Um, and mm. absolutely, meaning that that will then make reasonable all sorts of um, sort of deviants uh, <laughs> on the international stage, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is is you know not a good thing in the sense that like it would be much better to have an international order. That everybody um, finds to be just and reasonable, and, and sees themselves equally included in, and and stuff like that. Um, obviously, we've never had that. We've had maybe more of that than than you know at other times in history, certainly. But uh, it seems to be sliding, like backsliding, if anything, right now, which is well, and, not great. And this is a larger geopolitical issue, which is causing more and more fracturing. Because not only do you have like the Arab states who are now becoming more and more maybe let's say suspicious of the authoritative regime, but then there are many European nations that are becoming more and more suspicious of the sort of global economic order, right? And it seems that mm-hmm. there is a trend towards – some people are calling it like deglobalization or I'm not sure, a new economic – a new international order. I'm not really sure how to – like characterize it but there's definitely rising suspicions that are calling into question the authority that had kind of been that has been the consensus over the last you know since really since world war ii i guess we could say and one you know positive spin to have on that is look in the same way shelby mentions that engaging in deviant behaviors even if they're not going to make you better off but just because to engage in normative behaviors would be offensive to your dignity or self-respect. Yeah. That's rational to do, right? At the same time, someone like a country or a nation or a culture could say, we're not going to involve ourselves in an international order that's humiliating to us, right? Um, And even if it would be make us better off to be supplicants to other countries or whatever, we're not going to do it because it's humiliating. That could be a kind of exercise of political agency that's telling, Right. The others see as like, wow, that's that's right. I didn't think about it, but this is a humiliating order. And we agree. And we're going to do the same thing. Right? So there's a kind of a way in which that sort of exercise of political agency can be galvanizing for a community. Right? That's sort of what mm. he mentions when he mentions that, you know, riots can and um, and such can sometimes be galvanizing, galvanizing forces. Doesn't make them necessarily um, good in other ways, right? Or, or like, you know morally upstanding or whatever, but they can have this positive effect. I guess the similar thing could happen in an international stage as well. Certainly, I think people are seeing what the Houthis in Yemen are, are doing as, as, you know, exercising a kind of natural duty um, of nation states, if there is such a thing as a natural duty of nation states, to prevent genocide by whatever means possible, right? Um, I guess any means other than like, you know, reverse genocide or um, something like that, right? So 
that that does exist. I think even in like, there's something in the Geneva Convention or something that mentions that like almost anything is um, permissible for a military or nation to do to prevent genocide, right? And I know that the Houthis have like mentioned that as like a reason why it's it's wrong for like U.S. ships to um, to stop them and whatnot. Hmm. Yeah. I do wonder, and then I just want to say this. I mean, there's a lot of, there's so much more that, that I, that, that is triggering this in me, but I realize that we're about an, you know, an hour and a half in, so I don't want to keep extending this too long. But, um, so then I think it's also important then that the thing that Shelby also though reminds us is that we can't just simply then allow for us to justify any sort of tactic. And that's why he talks about like the duty of justice, right? Or um, the natural duties. And I think one of the things that I think might be like a good check to then say, okay, so how can we, even though we might say it's reasonable sometimes to understand why those activities of deviance might be undertaken, we also then always need to have like this kind of moral check-in right and he he uses these languages um right here of like not letting tactics corrupt one's character and i think that there's something kind of nice and traditional about that but like in the not traditional in like the american traditional sense but even like in like the history of philosophical concerns with virtue sense virtue theory theory kind of stuff yeah so i was thinking yeah which i think is really yeah go ahead yeah, he says deviance shouldn't be a vocation, right? right. That's kind of That's how he phrases it, it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then you've kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, what does it profit someone to gain the world and lose their soul? I know that's talking more about like um, status and things like that, but also it's kind of like, what value is it if you gain certain gains of self-respect, but then in the process you lose your character? And this is why he also says we also need to make sure that the ghetto residents are held accountable still that there are these natural duties and and i'm trying to just find the list of them um that he talks about like what are they like there's uh oh yeah the duty not to be cruel the duty to help the needy and vulnerable provided that it's not too personally risky or costly the duty not to cause unnecessary suffering the duty of mutual respect and then there are many other basic duties and that they shouldn't be void just because someone's oppressed. Now, we could we can argue about those and whether or not those where do those duties come from and how do we justify them and to what extent should they be um, should they have any sort of like causal force over over the oppressed community. But nevertheless, I think what I like is that he's at least saying, "Hey, we also can't just simply justify anything that is done." And I think a lot of people who are kind of like saying that Oh, there's all the Hamasniks out there who are just like justifying the horrors that they committed. And first of all, I don't know too many people. I, I know some are. And I think a lot of that, I think if you were to really sit down with people, you would say, look, do you really condone this or are you just angry? And I think that that's an important discussion to have with people and to also recognize that sometimes especially online conversation, people say shit just to be inflammatory and you don't really know what someone thinks, right? So it's also really difficult to ascertain like where, who's a real Hamasnik? I don't know how many real Hamasniks there are out there. And what I mean by Hamasnik is is only like in the caricatured sense that it's like people are, like certain critics are like pushing back, like these people actually love the fact that these militants like, you know, 
burned civilians or something. And I just don't know that too many people feel that way. I'm sure many do. And and I would then want to be like, cool, where does that anger come from? And it's not necessarily unreasonable, but do you truly believe that in sort of like a, uh, like you think that it is good to cause that? I mean, I don't know, you know, but nevertheless, I think the point is, is that I'm interested in this as being like, is there a sense in which we can say that there are still these like check-ins that we need to have, these barometers that we need to have every once in a while so that we can be like, okay, cool. We can understand deviance but also be like it's probably good though to try to maintain some sense of like human virtue what how we define that human virtue maybe that's up for debate shelby seems to have a little bit more clear delineation on what he thinks those virtues might be but nevertheless i think it's kind of important to at least have that discussion yeah i mean i I totally agree and i will say first of all about the hamas neck thing like i'm sure some people are defending hamas but it seems like most of the time the even defense of Hamas comes from a place of like, you're going to tell me I have to condemn Hamas before I'm allowed to do anything. Right. Like I, re- right. I reject the very idea. That's, that's sort of a kind of humiliation, right? That's the acquiescence to injustice have- that he's like, you right. have to prove that, that, that Shelby talks about. Like you've got to prove your, um, your, what is it? That your, 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 your kind of like, moral your moral fiber before we'll even let you engage and the the standard that dictates what that moral fiber is is the very system of injustice that you're critiquing <laughs> right it's unequal because you don't have to do the same thing for the israeli government <laughs> right right um so it's kind of a humiliating tactic to engage in before you engage in a debate which means you lose it from the outset because you've been humili- humiliated right. and the other person hasn't right so it's rejecting that whole sort of social dynamic that usually is where the hamas defense stuff comes from right which is i think you know still practically dumb you shouldn't do it but you know it, it comes from somewhere other than like i love when israeli babies get murdered or whatever right right um, exactly additionally like I, I think you're you're right that this kind of moral check-in idea is the way that natural duties are, are functioning here in shelby's argument and i think that's right to a certain degree um i do worry though that you know you you mentioned those that list of uh natural duties like not being cruel and helping the needy and stuff like that well, another one that he mentions, as we talked about, is the duty to self-respect. That's a natural mm-hmm. duty, right? And what happens when natural duties conflict, right? The duty to self-respect yeah. and the duty yeah, to yeah. justice. That's 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 the problem. And Shelby doesn't talk about that, really, right? And it seems mm-hmm. like in the most difficult cases, like the ones we're talking about here with Palestinians in Gaza, it is a situation where the duty to justice and the duty to self-respect conflict, and it's really hard to know which trumps the other in a practical scenario. And it's understandable why one person would choose one versus the other, even if I would say, I would like, you know, I would absolutely be on the side of the duty to justice um, being more important in that respect. And so, you know, killing people in a kibbutz is not good, let alone the fact that like it's practically not going to result in anything good because it's just going to mean Gaza is going to get leveled, um, which it is. So I would be on that side, but at the same time, especially if someone had suffered firsthand at the kinds of humiliation that many people in in Gaza have suffered, that I would understand why um, that duty to self-respect would become like an all-consuming sort of guiding principle. Now, there's lots of other natural duties like the duty against cruelty and helping the need and stuff, which all together, I think, 
would would hopefully influence someone to not be consumed by rage and vengeance driven by their desire for self-respect. But humiliation is an incredibly strong incentive, right? There's many ways in which like classic Republican um, classic Republicanism, not, you know, big R Republican, but in the sense of like the political school um, of Republicanism, which is about, you know, like um, anti-monarchy, humili- like that. Yeah, like humiliation plays a super strong role in, in Republican thought in that way, um, where like the desire for uh, democratic governance and stuff like that comes from this need to escape humiliation by right. um, oppressive political elites and stuff like that. Like the, the virtue of that kind of thinking is, is, even though I reject a lot of that kind of thinking, is like, yeah, humiliation does play a super strong role in these things. And I think sort of a lot of what we've seen in political thinking over the last century is trying to sort of push that sense of humiliation underground and make it this irrational, unconscious, purely emotive kind of response. Mm. When responses to humiliation with aggressive aggression and violence are perfectly rational, right? Because humiliation itself is a kind of violence, right? Mm. Um, you can just, I mean, just to think about this on a normal scale, imagine someone mm. Mm. like says something incredibly offensive to you in public. Like, would you feel a kind of right to punch them? You might. In fact, Sometimes. there's lots of occasions where I think people <laughs> have rightfully punched somebody in the face for something incredibly offensive that they said to them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just a, on a small scale, the way in which humiliation is a kind of violence that often, what, what is Matt Barnes? What did he say? Violence is never the answer until it is. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, not saying that, you know, I wouldn't punch somebody for saying something offensive because that's just my constitution or whatever, but it's, it's understandable by someone might. Right. Yeah. And that's just, again, I do- that's just going back to that, that need for um, self-respect. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I I wonder if Shelby would have a response though to say that he does he does try to work work through that impasse that occurs when you have the duty to self-respect that is conflicted with the duty to justice. And I think it's his discussion of the two different societies where the one that is like just failing to live up to its own ideals and the one that is constitutively unjust, like ideologically unjust. And I think mm-hmm. his answer is is well, but there isn't really ever a society that is either or, right? That's just like a formal way to understand these two tendencies within a society, but that actually even in a society like ours that is thoroughly unjust, um, as he says, if the society is stabilized by a deeply flawed conception of justice, um, he says, but but you don't really ever have a society that is completely constructed in that way and that there are there are institutions that fail to live up to their professed ideals within that society, even if its basic basic structure is unjust in other ways, right? So I think that for him, that is his way of working through them because he's like, so yeah, you do have that duty to self-respect and it will run into its limits at times and it will flare up and it will um, exhibit itself in acts of deviance. But nevertheless, there is still... A sense in which within a society, because it's complex, you should still be always tending towards the reconstruction of that society in the pursuit of reforming the just inst- or the institutions um, towards justice. So I think that's kind of his answer. And here's what I wonder. This is what made me think about like a certain Marxist critique 
a particularly like a Frankfurt School type of critique of capitalist society, one that is uh, becoming more and more, that might already be further subsumed under a type of capitalist rationality, is that if there is a hegemonic order, then that means that maybe there is an ideologically unjust order in toto. And at least someone like a sort of like maybe a reading of Herbert Marcuse, you know, this kind of like one-dimensionality might think of capitalist society and capitalist culture in these terms, right? I think that most like careful thinkers don't because even they would say, well, yeah, but of course there are even like sites of 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 non-exploitation and non-domination and oppression even within capitalist society. But there's a certain tendency to think, you know, that there's like this engulfing tendency and i think that a lot of like lefties can kind of fall into this and i think that this maybe like can lead to a sort of like justification of like any sort of inflamed transgression because society is all corrupt right which i just want to put that out there because i know that some people think that way not shelby of course and that there there might be a way that we can think of like the tendential encroachment of hegemonic enclosure in the name of an unjust system, um, but but I just wanted to kind of put that out there, and I think that and I think that 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 Shelby's answer is, of course, you know, well, obviously we don't live in a society that is just thoroughly and replete, repletely unjust. There are still instances of possibility for just reformation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there probably is in our societies that are completely unjust, like slave societies. I would I would argue probably. Um, but yeah, I think your point stands that he would probably say that um, almost any contemporary political system is going to be a combination of, of those two kinds of injustice. Because, because real guess... quick, he does say he does say in a footnote that there he says in on footnote sixty two on page one fifty eight he says there's a variant on this point of view that would appear to have traction in some urban black communities. On this alternative view, the United States is thoroughly corrupt and cannot be redeemed. And you definitely see this. And this is written in two thousand seven. You definitely see this in certain popular forms of like the anti racist movement today, right? Um, I'm like Afro pessimism too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, certainly. And I was thinking more um, of like Palestinians in Gaza versus, um, you know, uh, African-Americans in the U.S. But like, yeah, it's tough, right? Because, I mean, I think even like justice in the U.S. is more like the ideological system than the near justice system. I mean, Rawls even thought this in the 70s, right? He thought any um, capitalist order was not even an attempt at justice let alone a near, nearly just system. Um, and that, I think, is, is right. Um, that said, that's totally consistent with there being sites of justice within a society. And that doesn't even, don't even have to be, like... So we talk about the basic structure, that's, that's Rawls' terms for, like, political institutions, but that involves social institutions, too, including all the way down to the family. So we talk about this a lot in, in this podcast is like mm. this idea that we're capitalists at work so we can be communists at home, right? Mm. I'm like, there are sites of justice in institutions in our society, even if like the governmental ones in the market, economic ones are not, are like thor- pretty thoroughly unjust. Um, there are plenty of institutions that are 
that are better than that and that are sites of justice that we can like model ourselves after and find solace in and stuff like that. So yeah, I definitely think that's true. Um, and we can build out from those institutions to to hopefully other better ones at the at the larger macro political level, right? Um, I don't know. Is that is that kind of good? I'm I'm not sure exactly what um, you were saying to the to the two kinds of injustice thing. Yeah, it just it seems that there's a certain way of thinking that fits within this footnote that like there are social orders that are just thoroughly corrupt and they cannot ever be redeemed because they are so ideologically conditioned constitutively okay, yeah. Yeah. that they cannot be redeemed. Shelby's argument, I think he doesn't accept that. I think he thinks that even in a country like the United States that is still unjust in its basic structure, that there are still kind of like just ideals that it just falls short of. And so that's why the oppressed community the ghetto residents can still come together and there's still a possibility for them to reform the system. And then this makes me wonder, so what about Gazans? So if Gazans are the analogical ghetto residents, is there any sense that they can appeal to justice within the order or is the order entirely exploitative? And then it makes me be like, well, but South Africa has just come along and presented a case at the ICJ and that there could be – now, granted, you're like, great, at what cost? 30,000 people are fucking killed, right? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. But the question is, is there any sort of possibility for justice to be enacted within the global liberal democratic order that the Gazans are also radically excluded from? Like, is there any possibility? And I just don't know how valid of a point that is. But nevertheless, I just want to bring it up because it does seem that in real time, we're we're actually kind of like testing this out in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard not to be pessimistic about it, right? Just that, I mean, even you didn't mention like you were mentioning South Africa as the country that's bringing the charges against Israel at the international court, right? But even like people point to South Africa as an example of an apartheid country where, you know, things aren't like ideal there, obviously, but like apartheid was ended as it was to a certain degree in the U.S. as well. Like progress has been made in both the U.S. and South Africa on racial justice. Lots of progress, right? Um, Mm. Nowhere near like ideal, but lots of progress. And could you see a thing like that happening in Gaza? It's really hard to see. Well, first of all, Gaza is like rubble. So that's one problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And Israel's like pretty clearly positioning itself to expel all Palestinians from Gaza to other countries. And that's obviously completely inconsistent with any kind of inclusion into a just political system if they're literally expelled from the country, right? but also like South Africa isn't like 85, 90% of the country black. Like that's not the case mm. for Palestinians and, and like Palestine, right? Cause I think even if you include the West bank and Gaza and then Israeli uh, Arab citizens, that's still about half of the Israeli population. And they're obviously splintered in these three different um, zones with different, different rights dependent upon which zone they're in. Right. So, um, I mean, obviously, I don't know. It's really hard to to say, and so that makes it difficult to like figure out. As as much as I like a lot of the sort of formal aspects of this analysis, 
in certain ways, with some misgivings here and there, what is a person on the ground in these situations supposed to do with this? Right? Mm, like, yeah. what are they? how are they supposed to apply this sort of formal analysis to, like, what I should do, um, given that, like, you know, my, my country's been laid to, like, been completely, like, decimated, and I'm currently being, like, uh, living in a refugee camp, which could be bombed at any minute, and then I'm looking at forcible... Um, forcibly being expelled until like somewhere in Africa. Right. Um, mm. I don't know. I mean, again, I don't think like Shelby's uh, needs to like answer that question here, but it does speak to like no, sure. h- how much conformal philosophical analysis of um, political systems and justice really do for somebody who is an oppressed person on the ground. Like there's, there's a certain limit that's reached there. Right. Also, life is short, you know? Um, how much can you expect someone um, to fight for just systems that they will never see, even if it's possible they could mm. exist sometime in the far future? That's expecting a lot of somebody, and I don't know. Like, it's exemplary when someone does do that, but it's hard to expect it. Yeah, there were some time factors in this essay that I I would love to explore maybe in the future when he's talking about like legitimate versus maybe illegitimate actions insofar as they either will or won't lead to justice or that they might compromise the pursuits of justice. But I'm like, but that's also hard to know in the moment. Like even those actions that you might see as being like counterproductive in the pursuit of justice, maybe in the long run they actually will lead to the production of justice you know what i mean so it's like (laughs) there's a time there's a there's a time factor here that also needs to be considered that i think complicates this at another level and then and then the very last thing i'm going to say i promise is that i just want to give a sort of like maybe radical black um anti-racist argument thinking along the lines of like the work of like cedric robinson or someone like that who might say something like um the activities of the oppressed, insofar as they do change the system, they do it by working outside the system, by something that is like uniquely, in Robinson's terms, like black, right? So maybe with with what I was just saying about like the ICJ case, like maybe what South Africa is attesting to is that which is actually outside of the liberal social democratic order which is something that is constitutively Gazan or something like that. Like there's some sort of excess that is then being enfolded into the kind of like juridical order, but that, that in its core, maybe there is something excessive and unique about like the Gazan call for an alternative or like the black call for an alternative that isn't just simply asking for equal rights within a pre-existent order, but that is like attesting to something that is unique and excessive beyond the bounds of the order itself. And I know that's a bit abstract and kind of like airy-fairy and and we don't have time to discuss it, but I do think that a certain anti-racist, maybe Afro-pessimist, I don't know. Um, it's been a while since I've read the work of Sexton. Um, but I do know that I found a lot of a lot of stuff that was interesting in Afro-pessimistic um, analysis. And Cedric Robinson isn't an Afro-pessimist, but I think a lot of maybe Afro-pessimist readers have been influenced by some of his some of his work. But but yeah, I just kind of wanted to put that out there. 
Yeah, I just really quickly, just to put a put a um, a bow on this. I think I just say part of that can be captured, by, I think, by Shelby's second kind of injustice, right? When you have an ideological conception of justice that permeates a society, yeah. you should reject it and not appeal to that sense of justice. You should instead appeal exactly. to a different one, yeah. right? Um, and so reform won't work in that sort of system because you can't appeal to a widely shared sense of justice that's correct, right? So I think that's absolutely right. And there's certain senses in which, like, again, the notion that, like, okay, if someone tells me, like, I need to work a fast food job and then get an education and then work in, like, a shop working my way up the system and, like, um, you know, uh, being a supplicant uh, or a sycophant to some, like, you know, corporate boss or whatever, like, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. Like, that's, yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Like, totally rational and reasonable to reject that sort of thing mm-hmm. as a sort of affront to dignity. Like anyone who thinks that you need to do this stuff and humiliate yourself to earn the means of survival, like that's bullshit. No, you don't. Yeah. Um, that's totally right. And so sort of um, creatively coming up with and exploring different senses of, of social orders is absolutely what's necessary in that kind of a context. So absolutely. That said, there's also a side to that kind of pessimism, which, you know, the foremost Afro-pessimist in the United States is on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Clarence Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. He also thinks that racial injustice permeates American society so much that it can never be resolved. Like, he actually comes from a, a weirdly kind of leftist perspective on his analysis of racial justice in, in the country. But then that leads him towards, like, these weird kinds of notions of how there needs to be stronger black men um, who will lead black culture away from being like overtly, you know, feminized or infantilized or whatever. And it's all this like weirdo uh, conservative shit that he's into. Um, and you just, I just think the idea is you want to kind of avoid that kind of thing, right? Where you just give up on the notion of justice altogether and instead use the sort of pessimism about the sense of justice that permeates society in certain um, areas to then explore what justice would look like. And so the creative side of Afro-pessimism um, is, I think, exemplifying that sort of thing, right? Explore different. Mm. That's why like, I think a lot of Afro-pessimists are so into sci-fi, um, because that's a way you can explore radically uh. different social orders. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. It reminds me of kind of like the old um, Soviet cosmism, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like exploring other worlds. and Yeah, yeah, that's cool. All right, so we've been going for a long time, but before we finally end, we have to do everyone's favorite part of the podcast, and that's the Sticky Leaves. For those who don't know, the Sticky Leaves portion of the podcast is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's granting us meaning in a, if you're pessimist, if you're pessimistic, then it's a meaningless <laughs> universe, but hopefully it's not. So hopefully we can find some genuine meaning in it. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week? I have found some meaning. Actually, just uh, I'm changing it up. It was a, a little audible just before we started recording. Um, have you heard about Keanu Reeves' new book? Have you heard about this? I have not. It is co-written with China Mieville. No way. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. It's not out yet. It's not out until, I think, July or something. Let me see. It's called The Book of Elsewhere, and it's based on, like, I didn't even know that Keanu Reeves wrote, like, a graphic a graphic novel series, 
but it's based off of that. It's called The Book of Elsewhere, a novel by Keanu Reeves and China Mieville. And on the website, it says the legendary Keanu Reeves and inimitable writer China Mieville team up on this genre-bending epic of ancient powers, modern war, and an outcast who cannot die. And I cannot wait. That's all I'm going to say. And part of me is hoping, like, first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. And second of all, I'm hoping that this is like a test case, an IP value test for a future film or TV series with China Mieville as the writer of the adapted screenplay, with Keanu Reeves producing, putting all the care that he puts into assembling the teams for production, just as he did with like uh, uh, the, this, the John Wick series, but also many of his other stuff that he's done over recent years. Put all of the effort into that and make something fucking awesome with Mieville as a as a screenwriter. Like, I'm so curious. I, I want to see what that is. So I'm part of me is wondering if that's what this is for. It's like, okay, we're going to make a novel about this. We're going to get a built-in audience. And then we're going to be able to say we've got pre-existing IP with a built-in audience. And then they're going to be able to get funding. And then they're going to make a series or film series or something like that. So, But fuck yeah. That would be incredible. I would love to do that. Um, we got to read some China Mieville for the podcast. He's done nonfiction. I I love his nonfiction. I absolutely love his like his essays. I think one of his essays on apophatic Marxism is still one of my favorite essays. I return to it very often. It's one of my favorite essays that I've kind of come across about like politics, but also something more than politics. Maybe like a mystical politics that really just makes my my mystic soul ring. You know? Yeah, for sure. It'd even be kind of fun to read some of his fiction, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, I don't know how we'd even. We could do like a book club thing about that, I guess. Be pretty uh, far afield from what we usually do, but that'd be fun. No, would be really he, fun. Has he ever written for the screen? I'm looking right now. Um, it doesn't look like he's got any. A television adaptation of The City in the City was broadcast. Let's see if he wrote the screenplay um, for the television adaptation. Uh, it says written by Tony Grissoni. It doesn't look... I mean, I'm sure he was involved in some way. But he doesn't have a producer credit. So um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, the short story Estate was adapted into a 25-minute movie. Um, so maybe, maybe that, but nothing... It looks like nothing... Um, like for broad audiences or nothing. I mean, I guess the the City in the City adaptation, but it looks like that wasn't him that adapted the screenplay. So I don't think so. Yeah, that'd be super interesting. I'm Fuck very yeah, curious dude. about this about this book. I too. know. Yeah, I know. I, I, I mean, I want to know how Keanu Reeves and China Mieville found each other. That's that needs to be explained. <laughs> that was that was the thing. Like, well, for, like first of all, I was going to say one of the books we could we could read October, the story of the Russian Russian Revolution, which is his nonfiction book that I've read. Um, mm. That would be kind of fun. But what I what I just noticed was is that so there's a video that Waterstones just released on Twitter, and I just reshared it, and it's of Keanu Reeves being like, "I'm so excited to let you know that I'm co-authoring this book with one of my favorite writers." So like, I don't know if he 
if he sought out China Mievo, which is, this is what I'm hoping, because I want to just feed more into the lore of Keanu Reeves as being, like, our best, like, dude American celebrity um, of that generation, I want to be, like, he's a huge fan of China Mievo, and actually then Keanu Reeves is, like, an, like, politically awesome. <laughs> and, and... I, I have an explanation. I have a proposed okay. explanation. Okay. So Keanu Reeves is one of plays one of the characters in the video game Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have heard yeah. about this. Yeah. Well, it's like yeah, a it's, it's like a special add on character, right? Um. Well, he's he's one of the main characters. I mean, he's oh, is he? He's not. You you don't play him, but he's like the other main character that you don't play. Oh, okay. okay. Um. Yeah, he's 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 really good. Even that's kind of a ridiculous role. Sometimes he's he's very good in it. But in the in the video game, he plays a like a radical political revolutionary who engages in all sorts of like violence and shit. Who is also the lead singer and guitarist of like the biggest rock band in that world. <laughs> and that and that band but is Keanu. Well, no, he's um he plays that character, right? But the music they have a bunch of songs from that band in the game. And that band that plays those songs is Refused, the Swedish oh, hardcore yeah, band from yeah, the nineties. Yeah. The Shape of Punk to Come, one of my favorite exactly. albums. Yes, yeah, one of my favorite albums too. Um, Dennis Lixon, uh, the lead singer of that band, who basically is the voice of the singing voice of Keanu Reeves' character, um, is a noted a socialist, right, uh, intellectual in Sweden. Um, I I'm going to say Dennis Lixon. And Keanu Reeves talked because they're playing each other, right? Mm-hmm. Or I guess Dennis Lixon is playing the singing voice of Keanu Reeves in this band, in the game, and gave him a book by China Mievel and said, you should read this, Keanu. You'd like it. Because I bet I'm you- so into it. No, no doubt that Dennis Lixon knows plenty about China Mievel. No doubt about that. For sure. What was his other band? Was it International Noise Conspiracy? He's got several, but yeah, International Noise Conspiracy is the probably second biggest one besides Refused. Yeah, I just remember the song Capitalism Stole My Virginity. I fucking love that song. <laughs> it's a great song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that uh, that that genealogy. That's that's exactly what it is. And even if it's not true, we're going to run with it. So, uh, perfect. If it's not true, it should be. That's right. So yeah, so that's what I'm stoked about. I think it comes out in July, but um, bookmark it, everybody. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a romp. And again, more than anything, what I hope is that it does find an audience and that they can get the funding to hopefully turn it into a series um, of some sort. That's my that's my total projection and speculation, but hell yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome, dude. Sick. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode. Um, obviously, we're going to put the... I mean, if you've gotten this far, um, you might not want to read the essay because you've already gotten spoilered to hell. But um, I'm going to put a link to the essay down in the show notes, uh, Tommy uh, Shelby's essay. And um, so you can check that out. Uh, if you can, please... Uh, you know, give us a review and a rating over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, all those other places where you can give ratings and reviews. Five stars uh, really helps and gets other people um, interested in checking out the show. And then if you can throw us a couple coins, uh, please do over at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything that we've got to say, unless there's anything that I've forgotten that you want to say, Troy. Just one thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidania Americans. Yeah.